What did you eat for breakfast? Uh, oatmeal. You are listening to the Music on Your Own Terms podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Print Company, located in Fort Worth, Texas. You may remember I talked to Justin back in episode 5 about the merch industry and his passion for music and working with bands and artists. Do you need help with your merch? Skinny Armadillo specializes in quality apparel decoration, including screen printing, embroidery, design, digital on-demand printing, web stores, fulfillment, and more. Contact Skinny Armadillo now to find out how you can grow your merch sales, discover the current printing technologies, or to get a quote. Call 817-546-1430 or visit theskinnyarmadillo.com. That's 817-546-1430 or visit theskinnyarmadillo.com. I have some great news for listeners of the podcast. If you're a band or an artist that needs some merch printed, or a business that needs promotional apparel or other items, in the month of January 2020, call Skinny Armadillo and mention the Music on Your Own Terms podcast and get 10% off your first order. Make sure you stay up to date with the podcast by signing up to the mailing list at musiconyourownterms.com. There you will find show notes to every episode, and links to other resources. Welcome to episode 32 of the Music on Your Own Terms podcast. I recently had the pleasure of talking with bassist Brian Bella. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're not worthy! We're stuck! We're stuck! Brian talks about his time working for SWR Amps, where he learned some valuable lessons in business management and why he left after the company was ultimately sold to Fender. We also talk about various strategies of how to build a fulfilling career in music, how he overcame having his custom bases stolen, and we talk in-depth about the creation process of his stellar new album, Scenes from the Flood. For those of you listening to the podcast for the first time, my name is Simon, and I want to thank you for taking the time to check it out. My goal is to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more besides. I also aim to provide a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues in order to help overcome them in the context of music. So with that, here is my chat with Brian Bella. All right, so welcome to another episode of the Music on Your Own Terms podcast. Um, I'm extremely um, psyched to be interviewing Brian Bella. 
from the Aristocrats. Welcome. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Very, very happy to be here. You don't really need an introduction, but I'm going to do a quick one anyway, because some people may not be prog and metal fans. Um, Aristocrats, you tour with Satriani, you've recorded on Death Clock, uh, Galacticon albums, Vi, Mike Keneally, Beer for Dolphins, uh, James LeBrie's solo album, um, and a whole host of others. Quite, I actually just recently looked at the uh, the Razzle albums, is it? The the kind of uh, jazzy oh, wow. kind of stuff. <clears throat> Oh, so yeah. I, yeah. I'm quite interested to dig into those because I haven't heard those before. So a little quick backstory. Um, I actually didn't come across you as a as a player until the Aristocrats originally got announced, which is kind of amazing because like I saw the Ultra Zone tour. I know you didn't play on the tour, but you were on the CD for the Ultra Zone. Um, so I don't know how I missed you, but that's just the way it is. Um, whereas like Guthrie... Um, I grew up listening to him on Guitar Techniques uh, transcription CDs when I was a teenager, and uh, uh, that's actually quite um, quite funny. There was a one one time he transcribed a Dream Theater song, and he had the flu. So I still have that CD somewhere. Let's go. Um, let's go back to start off with. I won't cover too much of your history because there's other interviews out there that that cover it pretty well, but. You grew up in New Jersey, and what what got you into music in the first place? Well, I I think it was it was kind of involuntary. You know, I remember being very very young, and my parents had a piano, and even when I didn't know anything, I was like four years old and just mm-hmm. kind of banging around on the piano, just doing random things. And uh, I obviously was interested in it uh, before I knew what that even meant. So I didn't yeah. start taking a classical piano lessons. That was the first real thing I did when when I was eight years old. I started that. And then when I was 10, I started playing the upright bass in the orchestra uh, simply because I think my parents wanted me to play something in the orchestra and mm-hmm. I wasn't really super into it. So uh, because I was a horrible kid, I just chose the most obnoxious instrument, the one that would have the hardest time getting around. So there it was, the upright bass. And, and then three years later, it was an upright bass song, the, the Stray Cats Rock This Town. I was like, oh, wait a minute, actually, maybe acoustic bass is cool. And so I just went, for like two hours. And when I was done, my hands were completely shredded. And I was like, this is stupid. I should play electric bass. So the 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 Stray Cats inspired me to play electric bass. I'm probably the only person who's ever said that. And, uh, and so I didn't start playing electric bass until I was 13. And I kind of took very rudimentary lessons, taught myself. And then I did a few jazz theory lessons, you know, private lessons when I was in high school, but I was just kind of a, you know, uh, uh, there wasn't much of a music program, unfortunately, in our town, even though it was a really nice town in New Jersey. The public school music system was not awesome, even though there was a great teacher in my senior year. And, uh, and so it wasn't until I got to Berkeley, really, when I turned 18, that I actually got serious about any of it. So I actually really got, I got started late. In the yeah, end, and you, you jumped into the fire there. Oh, I did. Yeah, I thought I was all hot shit, you know, because I was the yeah. best musician in my high school class in New Jersey. And then I got to Berkeley, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm terrible! I have to practice a lot now." Yeah, you're actually the uh, fourth uh, Berkeley alum on the podcast so far. So I've had. Uh, have you, are you familiar with Bentney? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I, I went and saw the, uh, I saw the Haken Leprous Bentney tour in uh, in L.A. when they came through. Yeah, they came through uh, Dallas, and uh, that was the coldest, um, like, I've experienced down here, and I was wearing shorts. And even um, Ina from uh, the, the singer of Leprous was like, I'm, I'm from Norway, and I'm cold. 
So, <laughs> it was quite funny. But yeah, um, I, I interviewed Chris and Jessica, and Chris was on the new Leprous album. I don't know if you if you heard that. I, I've heard a couple tracks off it. I saw Leprous live that day. Leprous is great. Those guys are super talented. Absolutely. The last time I saw you live was actually on the, uh, I can't believe it's been this long, but I saw you on the Unstoppable Momentum Tour in Boston um, with Marco and obviously Satriani. Um, so yeah, that was six years I, ago. I, I I can't believe it's been that long, and I was I went there with my son, and I realized that it's been twenty years since I saw uh, Joe for the first time back on the Extremist tour in London. So, but yeah, so let's you, so you went to Berkeley, um, then you moved to California with Joe Travers to join um, Dweezil and Amit's band Z. Um, so what what I remember from the interviews is that you you uh, you unsuccessfully. Um, went uh tried to uh try out for vi um and then you you said you went broke and had to get a full-time job so and uh, the the story is you went to swr and you worked your way up from the mailroom to um being one of the vps of that company um so you were still in music in you know in a way but uh my my question is is in that period of time when you you needed to get a job because you, you know you weren't making money as a musician per se um did you have any like imposter syndrome or you know serious doubt about your ability to make a career out of being being a musician you know i i made a decision early on that i wasn't going to do the casual gig circuit and that had a lot of implications you know, it was just like, I, I know that there was a lot of musicians out there who, and this is not, you know, I, I would never denigrate anybody for doing that. I know a lot of people who do it. It's a great way to play and make money and, and you know, any way that you can make it work in a in this crazy entertainment business is the right way for you if you feel good with it. And that's just the end. So it's no judgment or sneering down or any of that bullshit. Uh, but I just couldn't do it. Uh, I, you know, I did it for a little while when I was in college and I just remember feeling like I, I can't, it's very, very difficult for me to run around and deal with the, the, the hustle and bustle of moving gear and getting in and out of venues and all the people and everything, uh, to do gigs like that. And I thought to myself from an early age that I would rather be behind a desk writing or doing some kind of regular work and then leaving the music part for like what I really wanted to do with it. So right there, that was a that was a pretty clear choice, even though when you're in your 20s, you know, you're just making choices on instinct. You don't really know. Uh, so that's what I did. You know, when I when I wasn't making a lot of money when I was in Dweezil's band, you know, uh, but I didn't really know how to hustle or anything. I didn't have a lot of street smarts back then. And uh, and so when Mike Keneally and I left Dweezil's band and then uh I had this grand vision that me and Mike Keneally were going to take over the world. And the next thing you know, Vi asked him to join his band. And then Vi didn't have a bassist, but he had a drummer. And Mike Mangini referred Philip Bino and Mike Keneally referred me. And I was so precocious and young. I just automatically assumed that I was going to get the audition. All I got to do is beat one guy, right? And of course, it didn't happen. And then I looked around and I was like, I'm in debt. I better do something because, you know, I, I, I'm not going to jump into the casual gig circuit because I'm not in that circuit and I need to do something right away. Uh, so that's why I joined the Basecamp company. And so I didn't have it. The funny thing was I didn't feel like I had imposter syndrome as a musician, but there were people at the company who were kind of like, why are you doing this? 
And I was well, like, you were, you, you were already a, um, an endorsee right. as well at that point. So I know, but you know, it's like, it's a funny thing, you know, the, the whole in, in, endorsement, it's like, uh, I mean, as a whole side speech about that, which is like, you know, you don't, you know, companies don't endorse you, you endorse them. You know, everybody, when you're a musician and you're young and you're thinking you want to get endorsements, that's actually like completely backwards. You know, you as the musician, you endorse the company as a product that you use because reason X, you know, and then the company, maybe you get some publicity out of it, maybe not, but either way, it's really a two-way street with the artist and the company. You know, the company gets the benefit of you endorsing them, but in order to make it on their roster, there's an artist relations guy who works at the company who will say, okay, yes, we're willing to have you as a part of our roster and we'll publicize the fact that you're endorsing us. So it's a bit of a tricky thing, but yes, I was endorsing SWR. People knew that I was playing with Dweezil and Mike Keneally and was doing a couple things. And, uh, and there I am working at the company as the customer service manager. And they were like, really? And I'm like, yeah, really? You know, like I was like, I, I didn't have imposter syndrome as a musician. I had a little bit of an imposter syndrome as a person who worked at a company. And so then I wanted to really prove that, you know, hey, I'm willing to put in the hours. I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to, you know, to be like a, a, a person who's committed to this and not just, you know, one foot out the door looking for the next gig. I was gigging when I was doing that. Uh, and I took it seriously. I gigged with Mike Keneally mostly. And we did a few things with Vi Studio Sessions and a few things here and there, the Libri albums I did during that period. But, uh, but mostly I was working. And I got myself out of debt, and then I learned a lot about how business really works. I, I always tell people like I got like a poor man's MBA by going up in this independent company and then eventually having the company bought by Fender. So I watched a merger and acquisition happen, and I was right in the middle of it. I could not have been more in the middle of it because I was the person that Fender retained in order to run the division for them. So uh, that's how that went down. And I saw... I saw a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Human fallout along the way. You know, people who coming into the company, leaving the company, had families, you know, uh, some of them relocated, people left the business, you know. And then when I got to Fender, it kind of happened all over again, where there was a building full of other people in Arizona who were like, you're Brian Beller, right? Like, why are you doing this? And, uh, after two years at Fender and really, really being at like a high level kind of corporate intense kind of gig, I finally was like, okay, I'm 34 years old now. I'm not really happy doing this. Even I'm out of debt. I have some money, not a lot, but maybe it's time to give this another shot. So, so I started over at 34. Yeah. I mean, um, and I think that speaks to, um, you know, if you're doing something, even if you're not a musician professionally, you're doing something that's that if you're if you're becoming a um, an evangelist for the company you work for, that's kind of the ideal situation. Because, you know, for, for me, I worked 18 years in Massachusetts for a automotive company. Um, you know, it was it was a good job, but it wasn't really something I was passionate about. And I moved here and now I work for a T-shirt printing company and um, like it, it's it fits so well to the podcast yeah. and some other stuff I do because we're working with big big bands, small bands, and we can really help people out with their merchandise. Um, and it's perfect for me. What's the name of the company, by the way? It's called the Skinny Armadillo. They they actually um, 
sponsor the podcast, obviously by default. But um, yeah, so I don't know if you're familiar with any American Americana bands, but uh, Mickey and the Motorcars, Cody Canada on the Departed, they're 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 pretty big deal in that kind of genre. Um, but yeah, we've been doing fest some festival um, printing, um, but it's really great to work with musicians in another way. If you, yeah. if you see what I mean. So totally. I mean, it's like all about being a part of the energy, you know, like yeah. kind of like being a part of your tribe. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with today's economy and, uh, and the internetization of everything, it's easier to kind of, uh, micro target yourself, find very like-minded, specifically like-minded people right. and really kind of you know socially and also from a business standpoint, kind of associate. Uh, so back in the day, you know, in the late nineties and, and early aughts, uh, yeah, I was a bass player and I loved SWR and I got to be the SWR guy as a player and an ambassador. Mm. And yeah, I was passionate. The key word that you mentioned is passion. I was passionate mm. about it. I was especially passionate about it when I got to be the product development manager. That was like, you know, I had held every position at the company. I did exports, customer service, artist relations, some marketing. But when I was in product development, that was like, that was it. I was like, I love this, you know? I mean, yeah, it's a pain in the ass having to deal with little tiny details and, you know, have a team of engineers. You know, you just want something to happen right away and know it's got to be laid out on a circuit board and brought mm -hmm. back. You got to test the original. But like that whole the, the end result was you get to show a product that you worked on that, you know, that right. bass player on some gig somewhere is going to use, you know, mm -hmm. that you fussed over these tiny little details and then they're going to go out there and hopefully have a good gig because you did Absolutely. so so that was really really cool i kind of got promoted beyond where i really wanted to be uh in that and then when i was like dealing with like hiring and firing and you know really high level sales reports and everything i got i mean i'm glad i learned how to do that stuff but i wasn't necessarily passionate about that anymore although i am kind of obsessive about everything mm -hmm. that i do so there's always some passion in there uh, so between i think 2012 and 18 you were managing the aristocrats and obviously that carried a lot of uh, stuff forward to that. But I mean, what did you stop because the aristocrats got so big or like, well, what, what I, I changed think that, for you not? You know, it was like, I think there is, are you familiar with the term sweat equity? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, I mean, if everybody's not out there familiar with that term, it's basically, you know, you're doing a startup business and everybody's doing a little bit more than they should be or, you know, would normally do because you believe in this startup business and no one's going to do it for you. Uh, we did have someone who was band managing and he and he helped start the project. But it turns out that his skill set was much more suited to be the record company uh, manager and uh, and dealing with uh, accounting and inventory. And, and uh, he was an, uh, an excellent accountant. Uh, mm. And he's also a... a, a one of the head guys at Strandberg Guitars now, which is like okay. a big company in the world. So this guy's name was Ed Yoon, and he was the, there at the very beginning of us. But when it became obvious that he wanted to do more work at Strandberg, we had a kind of a hole. And we were just thinking, well, we could bring in another manager. And we started to do the math on where that all led. And we weren't even sure that we really could you know, afford that. Some bands, I think, get managers before they realize how much it will cost them. Mm. Uh, and like, there's a certain point where – I'll never forget this uh, – I had a conversation with Marcus Miller's manager once, a really smart woman named Danette Albetta. And we were talking about management. I can't even remember when this was, but she said something to me that really stuck with me. She said, if, if you don't have, and this is on the old days, if you don't have a stack of paper, if you don't have a stack of offers sitting on your desk that you don't have time to respond to, 
as an artist, then you don't need a manager. When that stack is so high that you can't respond to it all, you need a manager. And so, you know, I I thought about it and I I said, you know, to Mark on Guthrie, I said, I can do this. Uh, I I said, I don't know if I want to do it forever, you know, but I can do it. And I think that maybe I can help us get from point A to point B, you know, without having to bring somebody in that we don't know. Uh, And then it exploded. It wasn't because Mm -hmm. of my management it was just you know we just kept touring and then people caught on and it worked and uh and then it did kind of become a lot to to handle and then also you know having one guy in the band who's also the manager you know that gets complicated after a while so once we finally got to the point where we were like okay our numbers are good you know things are working you know let's see if we can bring somebody else in to to help out and do this and we did we and we went uh, you know we promoted from within we have a, a our european booking agent now who's really helping out on the management side uh but I have a pile of spreadsheets and, mm. you know, an enormous amount of data from uh, everything that we did during the time when I was the manager and everything that I had to do for SWR and Fender. It was all just the most valuable education I could have possibly wanted in terms of accounting and negotiating and dealing with some of the more complex uh, things. Because in the end, when you're the manager of a band, it's kind of like being the general manager of a company. Problems don't get to you unless they can't be solved by anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and so once you get to that point, you're only dealing with difficult problems. Right. You know, you, and, and if you solve enough difficult problems after a while, you suddenly you have this skill set of like, oh, I can solve difficult problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it definitely takes a psychic energy uh, and can be draining, but it's also empowering in a way to know that you can do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, in this day and age, we're all independent entrepreneurs if we're in the entertainment business. It's a skill that you just have to develop to a certain degree. Yeah. Oh, completely agree. So, I mean, on that, what would you say to a, um, you know, aspiring band? Like, what's the first thing they would necessarily, um, you know, start learning in business? Uh, what's your band agreement? Because, yes. you know, you get you, you start going and, you know, two guys are writing all the songs, the other two guys aren't. And then there's one guy who only barely shows up for rehearsal sometimes. And, you know, next thing you know, something happens and you're big. And then Mm -hmm. like that imbalance will just magnify right away. So, uh, you know, if you're going to be serious and you're going to have a band and you're going to go into business together, then you should have some conversations at the outset about, you know, what's your agreement with each other? Because if you don't have an agreement with each other, you can't really make an agreement with any outside, uh, party is, you know, with integrity anyway. Right. Um, I mean, that, that kind of leads me to, um, your band dynamic in, in the aristocrats. Cause, um, I imagine with the, the characters you have, I mean, especially Marco, so much fun, um, to watch as a live musician. But you know, what I, what I see in general with bands is, um, like they'll go on stage and there's really no show per se. And, I think a lot of people, um, you know, like Jennifer Batten or Mr. Fassfinger or, you know, whoever else, like Death Clock, you know, you have this visual thing that goes on and it's a really memorable experience. But I think with the aristocrats, there's so much chemistry on stage that you don't need that. You don't even have like a logo on the band. You know, the <laughs> I know. Everyone knows who you are and the, the chemistry's so good. Um, and I think, I, I honestly think it's one of the, 
few bands I can think of that has such a chemistry on stage that you don't need anything else. It's so fun to watch. Well, we're lucky. I mean, yeah. like, like it's, it's, it's zero production, zero production mm. costs. We love, it's great that we can go out there and do that. You know, uh, I mean, take Lepers for example, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, that's a vibe. Oh yeah. Like Lepers is a super intense vibe. You know, if Lepers was up there, like telling jokes to each other on stage, Lepers wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not yeah. what Lepers is. So if you're going to be like that, if it's going to be serious and it's going to be like a really intense vibe, you need lights, you need smoke, you need some video, you need, you just need it, stuff like that. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, you can also have a vibe and have zero production. Did you ever see Rage Against the Machine play live? I did not. I, did not uh, I saw them on the Evil Empire tour and it was at a fairly big place, you know, like Universal Amphitheater, like a 2000 seat capacity. They set up right on top of each other, right in the middle of the stage, like they were in a rehearsal room, you know, to the, they had the flags on the, on the cabinets and, and a few other things, zero production, uh-huh. zero, just, just energy. extremely basic lights, extremely basic and nothing else. And so you, you know, if you have, I don't even think it necessarily, you have to like, kind of like put on the little, eh, kind of like we do a little bit of a song and dance up there. We're telling stories for the songs and we joke with each other mm-hmm. and everything. And of course the band is founded on the concept of a joke. So it's the, there's a Zappa thing going on and it all comes back to Zappa. The, yeah, we can have fun. We can take the piss and we'll also play a lot of notes. I mean, that's like, that's right. Zappa. That's the whole Zappa vibe. But mm-hmm. I don't think that it has to be like that in order for you to go out there with no production if you kind of establish that as your thing early on. We're just lucky that that's the way that it worked out for us. We didn't have any plan. It wasn't like, okay, let's go out there and like not spend any money. And as soon as we're big, then we'll have this, we'll have the Pink Floyd light show. You know, it's, we could still have a light show. We could turn it into a big production, but none of us want to do that. I don't know how that would work. It would be, it would be weird, right? I mean, like you could imagine some songs, like you could get a vibe for Flatlands, you know, you know, and mm-hmm. have the basic haze and, you know, light and, you know, spot on Guthrie and, or for Desert Tornado, you could have like, you could have a video for that and, and, you know, you could spotlight Marco. There could be strobes. I mean, like you, there's, listen, there's things you could do. I, I've, I've just thought of a, a very guar-like uh, thing for Kentucky Meat Shower. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, if we wanted to, we could spend a lot of money and have mm-hmm. great videos and really like go full camp and just, I mean, have a lot of fun with it. Right. But yeah, we don't, you know, there's a, uh, an old business saying, uh, that, uh, we don't know, we don't want any whores on the roof. You know the punchline to that? I don't. We don't want any fucking overhead. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. It's a, it's, a, it's a corny joke, but it's it's one that one of my old bosses told me. And it's just like, you know, you don't necessarily have to have all that stuff in order to make it work. It will provide a thing, mm-hmm. production in a show. But everything has a cost. And in the end of the day, you know, when you when you go on the road for four, six, eight weeks and you're traveling and travel is hard, man. You know, you, you really, you know, even under the best of circumstances, you still suffer a bit from traveling. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it just takes a toll on you and you get home and you want to relax and imagine you get home and like, there's no money. And I've heard some bands talk to me about that. Like, you know, we, we did this and we did that and we got back and it's just like, we just don't have enough money in the end of the day. Right. And so, uh, you know, it, you gotta, it is a business. We're all doing it because we're passionate about it and the music has to work and that has to be the first step. But 
you, you got to make sure they don't take the furniture away. Right. No, for, for sure. Um, and that's a nice tie-in. Um, unfortunately, in 16, you, uh, you you had your bases stolen. I saw, I saw your post for that, which really sucks. As a as a busy touring musician with such specific instruments, I mean, how, how do you deal with something like that? It was horrible. Mm. It was horrible. What else can I say? You know, I mean, uh, I had a year where I, I, I never could find a replacement for that 1999 red modern five Mike Lowell that I had. And this is a long story and it's all over the internet, but yeah. I'm very, very fortunate. First of all, because I was working on another instrument that had a completely different sound anyway. And I wanted to have that as another tool in my arsenal. And I have that mm-hmm. now, which is a very mid range focused, smooth, modern sounding thing called the Mike Lowell BBM F five, uh, which has EMG pickups in it. And is kind of a, uh, I don't, I'm perfectly comfortable with saying this. It's kind of a, a cousin of the Spectre family of instruments. And I have some Spectres. So I just wanted to have a Mike Lowell bolt-on that I felt comfortable playing as a bolt-on, as a Mike Lowell build, but had that kind of sound. Now, a neck-through has a really specific kind of wonderful sound, and a bolt-on will never sound like that. But I have the thing that I want for touring now. But as mm-hmm. far as that original active jazz bass with the maple neck and the ash body, I got really, really lucky. And a bass... There were, I, We determined, me and Mike Lowell... Sparing a long story, with the specific parts that those bases were made of and made them sound the way that they did, there were 40 in existence. Wow. 40. Mm-hmm. And they were made between 1998 and 2001. And one of them came up for sale in Poughkeepsie, wow. New York, and I got it. It was, it was five units away from mine. And mm-hmm. not only does it do all the things that my old one did, it actually does a couple of things better. So uh, I use that one on the road now, and, and I used it on the Aristocrats album. It's the bass that's on D-grade Fuck Movie Jam and Terrible Lizard uh, okay. and Last Orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a great instrument, and uh, I'm lucky I got it back. But it, it, instruments are really, really unique. You could get two right off the production line, and they're still not going to be exactly the same. And uh, when you are super kind of particular and OCD like I am, uh, those losses were very, very hard to take. And uh, – you know, at some point you just kind of have to let him go and work and, and go forward. But it was, it was fucking horrible. What can I say? That's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm drinking a beer. Uh, you mentioned last orders. What is your favorite beer? You guys like to, um, Oh, you know, I, I, now I don't want to be the imposter here, uh, or, or be a poser because I am not the beer expert. That's obviously Guthrie. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Marco has kind of joined Guthrie on the, on the IPA wagon. Uh, although, uh, Marco is kind of more into like expensive, expensive whiskeys and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but Guthrie is Mr. IPA. Uh, I'll always defer to their judgment on beer because we always have a beer halfway through the show on stage and they're Mm -hmm. always making sure that they get the best beer in the house. So whatever they pick is fine with me. Uh, but in general, I'd rather have kind of like a, like a, uh, a porter or even a stout like a sweeter, darker, kind of oaky beer rather than the IPA. I'll, I'll be down with an IPA and that's fine. But when I have a choice, that's what I'll right. choose. Yeah, I'm not a fan of IPAs at all. I, I really like porters. Yeah, there you go. So that's good. Awesome. Glad we had this little uh, talk. Yes. yes. Can I ask what Onion Boy Records is a reference to? It's a Shrek reference. Okay. That's pretty simple. Remember? Yeah, I, I remember. Onions have layers. Yeah. Okay. I was I was hoping for a, a larger backstory, but there there really isn't one. <laughs> I mean, I remember uh, I was working with a very very talented uh, 
graphic designer, artist, and creator mm-hmm. uh, named Katie Towell, who mm-hmm. uh, has uh, several books published now and an illustrated series uh, based on her characters, which are called Scary Children with a K. Okay. And uh, we kind of came up with that together and she came up with a logo. And, uh, and th- this goes all the way back to 2002 now. Awesome. Um, so let's, let's talk about your, uh, your album, which is, is an amazing you know, prog masterpiece. Oh, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. So, I mean, you've got, you know, Joe Guthrie, John Petrucci, Mike Keneally on there, Neely. Um, I actually met Neely's brother in Boston, ah. um, opening for um, Face Warning. They are, a, they are a Boston family. I mean, they're an Israeli yeah. family that moved to Boston. Yes, indeed. But I wanted to touch on um, Darren Charles, because I'm a big fan of God's Oh, cool. <laughs> so, I was so I was so tickled that he's on there. Um, have you ever you know, interviewed no, Darren? I have not. I oh God, you have to do that. Yeah, Emergence is such a cool album. Ah, um, but how how did he get involved in in, in the project? Like, Darren and I, we, well, well, Darren and I have known each other forever, uh, and uh, we're going all the way back to 2012 now. Darren is 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 like the hardest working dude in the UK. You know, I, I know that like some people say that in the UK that like, oh, you know, it's like, you know, people aren't like always like super go getter all, you know, and everything like, but he completely busts the stereotype. He is just like a man possessed when it comes right. to, to, to getting stuff done and getting and working and making sure that his band Godsticks gets the most possible exposure that they can. And so the way that that worked out was that he somehow approached us early on. God, I wish I could remember the exact beginning of it. But he approached us and said, God Sticks could open for you and also help you tour the UK, be your crew, and mm-hmm. you know we can partner on all sorts of other things. And his, and his wife, Rhiannon, has a whole other skill set, basically in a you know, band's back office. And, uh, and the two of them are, are, are a formidable uh, mm-hmm. couple. So, uh, this go- we, so we did a couple of tours. And Mike Keneally also did the same thing with God Sticks over in Europe, where God Sticks was the opener and, and really helped out in terms of us being able to put on the tour at all. Uh, cool. So I was familiar with Darren's work going back years. And I also played on one of the early God Sticks albums. I can't even remember oh, which one. But we're going back to 2012 or 13 now. Right. Maybe even earlier. So uh, I, uh, I knew Darren. I knew his music. I knew mm-hmm. that uh, he was particular about tone because, you know, he does gear reviews for uh, yes. UK magazines over there. So he's really an expert when it comes to that stuff. And I remember, so I had my song, The Storm, which was kind of a prog metal tune, and it's in mm-hmm. B. So I did the demo with a baritone guitar, an ESP Hellraiser, mm-hmm. I think it was, or was that the Schecter? I can't remember. It's Schecter. Hellraiser's a Schecter model, isn't it? I believe it is. Yes. Okay, so I did it with a seven-string Schecter Hellraiser, and then I did it with an ESP baritone guitar. And mm-hmm. those are the two guitars on the demo. And I remember, you know, I, I, I'm not like I can get guitar, I can get around on guitar and do demos, but like to get like a really great metal sound, you know, I, I couldn't get that. So it ended up being this kind of spooky, overdriven weirdo sound. Mm-hmm. And so I got Gene Hoagland to play drums on it, which of course sounded great. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then there was all my keyboards and bass and rhythm guitars. And so I, got, I was thinking to myself, I have to get the guitars redone. So I went to Jake House and Lowe, who is Pliny's second guitarist in his touring band and also plays in yep. his band, the Helix Nebula, and does all sorts of other really, really cool shit. Jake is great. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw him 
at a, at a Pliny show in Los Angeles and he took a solo moment and he sounded great. And I was just like, wow, I want to, I want to, I want to get that guy on this thing. And I saw some of the other stuff that he was doing. It was very modern prog metal. And so I said, Hey, can you, can you redo the guitars on this? And he redid them all. And it was great. Uh, but it sounded like it needed another layer. And when I brought my demo guitars in there, there were some tuning issues and like, you know, execution issues. It just was, you know, it sounded like a bass player playing guitar. It didn't have the, the, it had a cool, weird thing, but it didn't have the whole vibe. And I remember thinking, uh, who could I get to like, you know, uh, to be the extra guitarist? And then I thought of Darren because they're the last Godsticks album. I think it was called Faced with Rage. Yes, it was. The guitars on that album sound unbelievable. They sound great and they're super heavy and thick and detuned and all that stuff. And I thought, wait a minute, there it is. That's the sound I need on this song. So I called Darren and I, I showed it to him. I said, can you redo these guitars again as another layer? Because there's like six or seven guitar tracks on there. And he spent a long time in the Axe FX3 working on the right model to get it right. It was all about the sound. The parts aren't even that hard. You know, it's just basic prog metal riff stuff. But it was the sound. That was everything. And I remember when he sent me finally a demo of the sound that he came up with. He was like, here, check this out. And I brought it into the session. And I was like, yes, 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 that's it. So then he redid all the guitars. And that's how he got on the, on the song. So it's an unlikely pairing, really, of Darren Charles from the UK, Jake Housem Lowe from Australia, Gene from Texas, uh, mm-hmm. me, and then Jamie Kime, the, the guitarist from the old Zappa Play Zappa band who Zappa, does the yeah. lead, which is a very kind of a Frederick Thorndall-ish kind of thing. Right. But I, 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 Godstick's new album is great too. The, uh, what's the brand new one called? Oh, Begins with a D. I there was one. I, I've been, I missed out on something. Oh, what, uh, hang on one second. I want to make sure I get this right. Uh... Oh, I have to go listen to something then. It is... Oh, come on. How could I not know this? Hang on. I'm going to go to their, their website right now. Inescapable. That's what it's called. Huh. Yeah. Inescapable. Okay, and, the, and the single is called Denigrate, and there's a great video okay. for it. Okay. No, I've seen Denigrate. Okay. Yeah. So the the album is called Inescapable. Yes. That's the one. Where, is that the one where they're, they're throwing cake at each other? Yes. The cake? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a weird, weird but awesome video. Yeah. Now, um, I, I usually say this at the end of the, the episode, but um, I think we're going to listen to Storm at the end. Okay. What I wanted to, to ask is, um, you know, it's very reminiscent of like Ziltoid, Galacticon, that kind of bombastic show tune, put to metal kind of vibe. Very, very dramatic, high opera yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. Um, and not, I'm not insinuating that you ripped anyone off, but, you know, that's... It, obviously, we are what we eat as musicians. Like everything comes out, you know, in our own personality. But um, what I wanted to ask is, you know, you got Steve Vai scored um, Bangkok by Tim Rice inadvertently, um, you know, on paper, and then he then I guess his manager said, "Oh, that's Bangkok," so he had to put it as a cover. Uh, that that is an odd story. I I, I it know is that an odd story. story. That to me, that's a that's a total trip. I I know how that can happen, but that one was a real trip. Right, and then Joe had an issue with Coldplay with If I Could Fly. Um, like, the Foo Fighters got accused of ripping off Dio with that one riff. Um, I'm, my question is, you know, obviously because there's only 12 notes, something's going to come out that's some, you know, similar to something else. Do you ever kind of worry about being accused of ripping someone off? And then, like, how do you stop yourself from being affected in your writing? That's a great question because... 
uh, it's all been done before. All of it. So you have to trust as long as you're not copying exactly. And, and you know, that's like the old definition of obscenity. I know it when I see it, right? You know, we know it when we hear it, when it's like, oh, wait a minute, you just ripped that off. You know, you have to trust that by the time your influences go through your own filter, that it's different. It just comes out differently. Like I, I know I, I'm probably different than most artists. I know really specifically where every bit of every influence on every song came from. I could give a, I could do a Spotify playlist of 50 songs sure. and people would hear them and be like, Oh, but like, why, you know, right. why? So, I mean, like, just for example, because this is like maybe a, a target for your audience. The fifth song on this album is called Steiner and Ellipses. And it's the other song with Gene Hoagland. And it is totally designed to be an homage to Strapping Young Lad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not, I didn't write it because I wanted to do homage to Strapping Young Lad. I wrote it because I wanted that energy in the part of the story of my album for there to be a sudden explosion of, is it benevolent? Is it malevolent? It's, it, this, it's absolute white hot energy that suddenly shows up in the story. And I remember thinking to myself, the most energized recording I think I'd ever heard was the song, uh, the two songs back to back, Skeksis and Shitstorm from Strapping Young Lad Alien. And mm-hmm. I knew all like that I wanted to write something that paid tribute to that before I died. Right. So that was it. And so, you know, I mean, I just sat down and I just wrote the thing that came out, you know. Uh, and most of my strapping young lad influence comes from the later period of them from alien and, okay. and the new black. And, you know, if you listen to you suck and you listen to the, the end of Shitstorm, especially, uh, and then, you know, even some of Skeksis shows up in the storm. If you listen closely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's all there. So what? Yeah. You know, and, and, it, and, and that process is never ending. I remember when Devin, uh, went online and posted that he said something like, Oh my God, can you believe that? I just realized that love is essentially, uh, Oh my God, what's the name of the song? Uh, it's the yes song from nine Oh one, two five. Uh, Hang on, I'll I have to look it up now. You have to look it up now because I can't remember. I remember I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, uh, let me see what the what the. Hang on. City of Love. Okay. Right. Hang on. Yep, it's City of Love. So uh, yeah. the whole course of that. We are for the yes version is we are waiting for the night. We are waiting for the night to come. I mean, like, that's pretty similar. Mm. But if you listen to the Devin song, it doesn't sound anything like the yes song at all. It just doesn't sound like it. It's completely rearranged, completely reproduced. And that's an example where the chords actually are the same. Usually Mm. the chords are a little bit different anyway. So, yes. I knew when I was writing the climax of Steiner and Ellipses that I wanted it to sound like the last 30 seconds of Shitstorm. Does it? Mm, kind of. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I could, go, I could go through every song on the album and be like, oh yeah, it's a little bit of that, it's a little bit of that, it's a little bit of that. You just have to trust yourself and just, and just know that 
by the time that you filter it, that it's not going to come out. There's a song on the album that I was so scared that everybody was going to think, oh my God, that's Let the Sunshine In from the musical Hair. Okay. I'd have to, I'd have to re-listen to Hair. Right? I mean, like, you know, and I was, I was actually petrified of that for like two days Mm. and frozen until I finally got over myself and I was just like, no one's going to fucking hear that. (laughs) Right. Now, if you played it for somebody, they'd be like, "Oh, okay, yeah, I, I kind of sure. hear it." But, but yeah, you know, when you're when you're inside, you can you can really go down a dark tunnel with no cheese with that stuff. So you just got to be careful. Um, all right. So, what? Uh, oh, actually, yeah. The, I mean, uh, the uh, the sound, the production of the album's also killer. And you had um, uh, Forrest the Savile who who did Carnival stuff. Yeah, um, he's a genius. You know, He's genius. Yeah, I mean, you talk a bit about of the production process, a little, just a, just briefly. Well, I knew that I wanted. I mean, you know, production and engineering was kind of a blurred line here. In the end, obviously, mm. I had to make all the final calls, and that was the only way that something like this could ever work. But early on in the process, uh, it I before I even started recording, actually, even before I even started making the demos. Mm. I knew that I needed a partner in the engineering and the mixing because I wanted to spare no expense and take as long as it needed. And someone who understood how a concept album works and could work in this genre. And when I finally met Forrester after I looked up the Carnival guys and John Stockman, the basis for Carnival, was abs- like, I owe him my whole life because he's the guy who got me you know, together with Forrester. Mm. Uh, I met Forrester at a show in Brisbane. It was an aristocrat show in 2016. I had the whole blueprint for the album already sitting there on paper and in my head and in outlines. And I told him, I was like, 18 songs, probably 90 minutes. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm really particular. I think it's going to be great. There's going to be a lot of people on it. You know, uh, are you willing to do something crazy with me? Mm. You know? And he said, he was like, you know, Aussies, they're all, they're up for anything. They're cheeky. They're like, yeah, let's get it done. They're very kind of just like people, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm up, for it. I'm up for it. I'm up for it. And I, I told him, I was like, yeah, I want it to feel like The Wall and The Fragile and, you know, and, and some of the big double albums that we all know and love. And he totally got it. So before I we went into the studio, I got a blueprint from him because he couldn't fly over from Australia for the tracking session. So he gave me a blueprint of like how he would mic drums. Mm-hmm. And we took that blueprint into the studio and we we matched it, you know. Uh, so even though we had different drummers, Gene Hoagland, Joe Travers, Nate Morton, Ray Hearn, every engineer who was tracking them had this blueprint that Forrester provided, which I think really helped. And then also Forrester's really, really good at reamping. So we ended up actually using quite a bit of my original demo guitars as rhythm guitars mm-hmm. on the album. And, you know... That, that, that's a skill too but in the end he was the one who had so many great tools at his disposal in order to make all these different songs styles drummers because that really makes a song sound different when you have a different drummer mm-hmm. sound like an album and he did it and so once he would create the template for a song then you know we would start working together we did it mostly online uh he had a live streaming service uh where we could work in real time we would communicate mm-hmm. via whatsapp text and uh, and we would make extremely minor adjustments. I mean, people who watched, if anybody watched the whole thing, they probably would have jumped off a bridge. I almost <laughs> did. But I, I had said to myself that this was the one album that I am not going to stop until it is absolutely perfect. And 
The only way to do that is to do a lot of work, walk away for a week or two, come back, listen again, do it again, repeat, 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 repeat. It just takes a long time because there's always that thing where you finish or an album and then you, you, you walk away and come back, listen, and a month later you go, oh my God, I can't believe I missed that. Why didn't I hear mm-hmm. that? You know? Right. Now, that probably doesn't matter to anybody else. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't matter. You know, this, uh, it mattered to me. And so we spent nine months mixing. Wow. Yes. And, uh, and when it was done, finally, in the end, I remember listening to it all the way through and then, and then thinking that was perfect. And then walking away for a couple of days, listening again, I was like, that was perfect again. And then another couple of days, I'm like, that was perfect the third time it's done. Um, there's definitely some, uh, I mean, yeah, on that, it sounds very cohesive. Um, um, you know, knowing, being very familiar with, you know, like, as you said, the drummers, um, I can definitely tell where Gene's playing, where Ray, Ray's playing, etc. Um, but yeah, it does sound a very cohesive, you know, thing, which is, which is a testament to his work. Yeah, Forrester um, did that, man. I can't, I didn't do that. He did that. Um, but so, as I, I know there's a few uh, songs on there, or maybe it's all of them, but there, there, there's some personal stuff in there that you're getting out. And with such a massive undertaking, you know, I, I, you mentioned that um, in other interviews that, you know, you, you've had this stuff building up in your mind and you've written everything before you'd even put anything down. What does it feel like finishing a project of this magnitude? It's, it's awesome. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because here I am. At, it's the end of a year and the end of a decade. Mm-hmm. And... There was so much I was trying to say about, you know, of course it comes from my experiences. You know, I could go into every single stupid personal thing and that'll just spoil it for the listener, you know. But yeah. the the vibe that I, I'm trying to, you know, that I was trying to give off is basically, you know, like I've said this in, in interviews, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that it's an album about disillusionment, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a synonym for negativity, which I think a lot of people kind of automatically go there. But it's, it's just, uh, you know not seeing things through kind of rose colored glasses or that like, you know, seeing, making things, intentionalizing things that they're better than they are kind of like taking the world on the terms that they, that they really are. And that, that requires some accepting some harsh truths about human nature. And so, you know, and you look back on the decade of, of 2010 to 2019, I mean, look at where the world is today versus where it was nine years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is the decade of disillusionment, isn't it? So I, I was just thinking about this, uh, uh, you know, last couple of days now that I'm home from the European tour and this is the end of the year and the end of the decade and the end of the year where I got the record done and I put it out and just feeling an immense sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. And I just wish that I could just give that to everybody who's ever wanted to write something or make an album and have it be exactly what they wanted. You know, that's, that, that's what I got out of this. Mm. And uh, I have to thank Janet Fetter because it was her album, her 2015 album, This Close. I know, I'm not, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with Janet Fetter, but she's a prepared baritone guitarist. It's, a, it's you know, a very ethereal kind of sound that she has. There's not a lot of percussion. It's, it's a, I don't want to say avant-garde, because you say avant-garde, and it's like, oh, it's just noise then. It's not. It's, it's melodic, and she's classically trained, but it's kind of like somewhere between a, a classical guitarist meets Bill Frizzell meets Nine Inch Nails. It's really interesting mm-hmm. stuff. And... Her album, I remember, because I was a fan of her previous work, and she put out that album, and I listened to it front to back, and I was like, that is a perfect album. Mm. It sounds perfect. 
The songs are perfect. It is perfect. And she felt the same way about it. She, and I remember seeing her walking around with this like glow, like I did it. I made the album I always wanted to make. And I was like, I want that. Mm-hmm. I want that. And so here I am and, 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 and I did it. You know, it doesn't mean that everyone has to love it or anything like that. And I just did it because it was the thing. This was the album I was trying to make my whole life. If anything, it's a bit confusing now thinking like, well, what the hell do I do now? <laughs> you know, I did that. What, what, what am I going to do? But, you know, I'll think of something. The next thing. So what would you, what, what advice would you give to musicians that are looking to make, a, I know we touched on this before, but a little bit. What, do you, what, what advice, other advice would you give to musicians that are looking to make a living in general in music? Whatever that appears to be, whether it's touring, you know, recording or transcription or teaching. Well, first of all, you got to master your craft. You know, you got to you got to you got to have the goods. That's first. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's you know, and it's easier than ever to get the goods because everything's on video these days. You just watch who you want to watch and you learn and you see it. It's right in front of you. You don't need to go to a store and buy a VHS or, you know, it's, it's all out there. So so, you know, do what you need to do then. You know, and this is hard when you're younger, but who, what is it that you want to be? You know, like get some intention. You know, you can't control the universe, but you can have some direction in which you want to go. You know, are you a side person or do you want to be your own artist? You know, are you a technical person? Are you, is it tone? Is it, are you a singer songwriter or a player songwriter first? And, you know, not Mm -hmm. like, you know, an extended technique person really, you know, what kind of genre you want to just get some. And if you can, you know, write it down on paper. I, I, feel, I feel like that really helps. Uh, and then once you're in there and you've got your band or you're doing your thing and you've got something that you want to show people, you got to really kind of get over yourself, especially in this day and age with, you know, people posting Instagram videos every day. I mean, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm never going to be the kind of person that's posting Instagram videos every day. But people are posting Instagram videos every day, especially I notice if you're under 35, mm-hmm. it's just a thing like, oh, this is what we do. You know, I grew up, I'm Gen X. I grew up in the age of blogging, you know, mm-hmm. and pictures and then some videos, you know, which are maybe a little bit more of a uh, a statement thing rather than just putting out video all the time. Right. It's old fashioned, but that's just what I'm comfortable with. And, and that's me and that's my brand and that's fine. So you know, find your own brand and then be true to your own brand. Mm-hmm. And I say brand, people think, oh, brand, what is, what is this? Like some corporate sellout bullshit? No, no, no. Brand is like what you are. It's like, it, it's that, like your real you. What is it that you're projecting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're selling it, but you're really projecting it, you know? And I think if you, if you think long and hard about it, you know the answer. It's in there. You just got to be comfortable enough with yourself to express it. And then find ways to share it with other people because no one's going to publicize you for you. Mm-hmm. You got to get out there and do it. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel really comfortable writing, you know, uh, some longer form, especially long form considering today's culture. But I feel comfortable kind of writing long form literary stuff and posting that stuff online with some pictures. And I, and, and I, that's always been good for me. And then video where needed. If you want to put a video up every 30 minutes, put a video up every 30 minutes. Great. You know, just whatever it is that's comfortable for you. Find a way to get your message out there and don't be shy. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, actually touching on that, the um, 
the last interview I did was with a young a, a young musician from Ohio, um, and she, she's 22, and it's inherent for that age range to put stuff out online, you know, daily, just what they're doing personally. Um, but what she said, you know, it talks to, you know, not posting so much and just posting stuff that's, you know, it, it's meaningful rather than just posting, hey, here's a single, here's a, here's a, gig, right. here's a, you know, it's, it's it, the, the stuff you want to post is, I think the most important thing is, is it has to be a, you know, meaningful thing. Yeah. And also, you know, your, your, your social media content is not the same as your artistic output necessarily, you know, and that's where the lines get a little funny. You know, if you're, if you're constantly posting videos of your, of yourself performing, well, then you're, that's your artistry. You're just, that's, it's out there, you know? I mean, um, I, maybe it's old fashioned and I, I think in a lot of ways it definitely is. How much more old fashioned could a double concept album be, you know, with saving it all up for one release, you know, I could have split it into three releases made through, made it three albums would have made more business sense, but it wouldn't have had any integrity with what the product really was and what the art really was. It was one piece. Uh, but yeah, save it all up and put it out there as the statement. You know, that's that's different than, you know, waiting 11 years to post on social media because I haven't had a solo album out in 11 years. That doesn't really work either. No. So you got to find a middle ground. Okay, so I, I mean, I, what I like to do at the end is kind of... Uh... Talk, talk to some big questions and get some um, more in-depth insight. Um, so what significant negative experience have you overcome and what did it teach you? Well, the, really, I mean, the, like, the, the first Steve I audition I had in 1996 when I was 25 years old was a big setback. Uh, and, and what it taught me uh, was that just because you are good enough to do the gig doesn't mean that you will automatically get the gig or that you are right for the gig. And there's more to, this is a sideman audition conversation. You know, not all music is about this, but, uh, if you're in that bracket, then, uh, it's not just about being able to play the music. I mean, like if you think about it, like being able to play the music is like the bottom line requirement for the gig. If you can't play the music, you're not going to, you're <laughs> automatically disqualified. So, mm -hmm. Just the fact there's a lot of people out there who can play the music, even if it's hard. These days, everybody's got technical ability. It's just crazy. So it, then it becomes what else are you bringing to the table? You know, uh, what's your vibe? What's your look? What's your sound? Uh, and then also the artist has their own peculiarities. You know, maybe they want to, you know, when they get up on the left side of the bed in the morning and they want to see somebody with pink hair, you know, it could be anything. Uh, so uh, it's just one of those things where, Realizing that and realizing that it wasn't just about proving I can do it and mm -hmm. and then instead showing up like, well, here's me. You know, when you show up like that, then you leave more room for other people to kind of join you in your creative and musical space because you're not taking up all the space with like, look at me, I can do it, you know. Right. So that was a big thing. Uh, and that really impacted my youth. And then, uh, you know, as far as other negative experiences, I mean, you know, the negative experience I had of having my all my instruments stolen led to the positive experience of me learning much, much more about what constituted the instruments that I loved. You know, I already knew a good deal about tone woods and stuff like that, but I didn't really go all the way in uh, into the, the minute construction of a bass neck through versus uh, bolt on and, uh, you know, different preamps and pickups, uh, fingerboards, and just, just everything. 
mm-hmm. went all the way in when I was trying to rebuild my arsenal. And that really helped me a lot. I, I, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have done that work to that degree if that incident hadn't happened. So there's just two examples. Cool. Thank you. Um, so flipping that around, what major positive experience has given you the encouragement to like follow this as a journey? Well, the solo album, Scenes from the Flood, I mean, that really, that's just been a joyous affirmation of everything I was ever trying to say as an artist, as a solo artist. Uh, There are deep, dark points along any creative journey where you're all by yourself and Mm -hmm. you're questioning yourself and you're fussing over the tiniest details and you're thinking, why am I doing this? You know, I'm running out of money. You know, I'm, you know, my, you know, my, my significant other is upset with me because I canceled dinner for the sixth time, you know, cause I'm trying to figure this one thing out and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of other sacrifices that you make along the way to really preparing a, 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 a an intense, uh, artistic product, you know, one that has mm-hmm. integrity, you know, one, one that's got passion. Right. Uh, so, you know, to have put in all that work and then to, uh, this is going to sound weird, but, uh, it's still, shocking to me that my album you know kind of gets mentioned along some of the other major releases of this year like I, I see like you know my name in a twitter feed with like you know Devin and opeth and stuff like that and i'm like me really I, I, i'm not just saying that to be to humble brag or be false humble that really freaks me out right. and and in the end it freaks me out in a positive way it's like oh my god like you know 10 years ago that wasn't happening so you look back on a kind of a time lapse, you know, in terms of what keeps you going and all the rest of that stuff that having it be received, I was going to do the album either way because I had to do it for me, but to have it be received and understood and appreciated by the people that I was writing it for, the people in our genre, mm-hmm. uh, that was a, an incredibly positive affirmation uh, and, and fuel for whatever comes next. And then of course, you know, the success of the aristocrats, I mean, that's a, that's a total black swan event where, you know, a band forms with, you know, three name players sure. and it's not a project. It becomes a band and then the band really takes off. And then, you know, five years after the formation of the band, we run a G3 bill with Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. Uh. You know, I mean, like, and from a business and a personal and an artistic standpoint, because we're all songwriting in there and we're playing each other's music, but we're also playing our own music, you know, uh, it, it's a, it's such a, it's such an interesting mix of fulfillments. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, that, that was a, a really an incredibly uh, affirming thing. So, I mean, these are the kinds of experiences that you're lucky to kind of have once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've had more than once in the last 10 years. And uh, I always say, and I really, really mean it, you know, I mean, I, I said the thing before about I wish I could just give that to people, the feeling of having, you know, done the album you want to do. I, that's what I want. I know that there are so many musicians out there who, you know, this business is extremely capricious. Mm-hmm. Some things don't make any sense, you know. Yeah, to a certain extent, it's a meritocracy and to other extent, it's not. Just random. You know, you can do everything that you can to put yourself in a position to take advantage of an opportunity when it comes up, but that's no guarantee that it's ever going to happen. And the wheel of life is completely random. And sometimes it spins funny, Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, a lot of things could have happened differently and and I wouldn't be here talking to you. I'm always mindful of that fact and that there's some incredibly talented people out there who maybe people don't know about 
mm-hmm. uh, or are striving to be in a position where it's different than the one they're in now. So, you know, you got to keep going and do what you do and be true to yourself. And, and that means that if you, and we'll just kind of take this interview back to the beginning. If that means that you're not doing music all the time and you're working and making money in another way, that is totally legit. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely legit. As a matter of fact, it's the only way that some people can really process music by not having it be the only thing that is their livelihood because then all sorts of strange psychological things can get tied up in the lean times when, you know, there's not enough money and that must mean my art sucks or blah, blah, blah. You know, it just can get really, really collapsed. And all those things aren't true, you know. So uh, we all need to eat. We all need to make sure they don't take the furniture away. We all <laughs> have needs that are extra, you know, that are, that are outside the purely practical. Right. If you're one of those people who can fuse the practical and the artistic, then great. If you're one of those people who needs to keep them in slightly separate spheres, great. There's no right answer to this. It's just whatever you can, you know, do to have a more fulfilling day than not each day that you operate in this crazy world. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just touching on the album, it's definitely my favorite album of the year. Oh, it's not, thank it's you. It's, it's, I mean, what a it, year for, by the way, what a year for albums. It is. Like, I don't like, oh, sure, I'll just put out an album, you know, the same year that Devin releases Empath and Tool releases Fear Inoculum and Opeth releases their album and everything. I mean, like, what a fucking year. Leprous's album is great, too. It's it's one of the great years for, for releases in our genre, I think. Right. But, I mean, that's the other thing, though, is every every album to a to an individual listener is going to be extremely personal anyway. So to say, quote, unquote, the favorite album for me is going to be different for you anyway. So, yeah, you know, that that's, you know, that, that's the beauty of music, I think. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And uh, I, all I wanted to do was make an album for people who appreciated those kinds of albums, you know, the big concept albums. And, and I realized that, you know, I don't know how many people under a certain age even really get that. Uh, but maybe for some of those people, it's the first time they ever heard something like that. So, you know, you can't think like that. You just got to, you just got to make the art you want and just hope it works. Sure. I think that's, that's the, uh, the best quote of the interview. So where can people find you on the interwebs? It's real simple. It's just brianbeller.com. And the only complicated thing about that is spelling it right, which is B-R-Y-A-N-B-E-L-L-E-R.com. Uh, you know, uh, my, my online web store is there. If you're interested in, in, in actually owning scenes from the flood, which I recommend either digital or physical, it's all there. There's high res digital through Bandcamp, and there's, you know, there's physical through my web stores. There's vinyl, there's colored vinyl. If you're into that, there's a purple vinyl, uh, and regular black vinyl. And then of course, uh, I am, uh, I'm, 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 there's no shame. I'm on all streaming services too. If you want to listen, check it out. That's cool. I'm on social media and Facebook. Uh, my musician page is Brian Beller Bass, and uh, I think my Instagram is also Brian Beller Bass. Let me double check. Yes, my Instagram is Brian Beller Bass, and my Twitter is just Brian Beller. Awesome. Yeah. And um, so you've got, uh, I think you start on the 16th with the Aristocrats in Luxembourg. That's my wife's birthday. Oh. Um, and then you're finishing up in... Oxford. Oxford at the O2 Academy. 
And that's the second leg. That's the second leg of the European yes. tour. We just did a, a first leg and we just finished that up. And then in April, you're starting with uh, Joe. Yeah. And right back to Europe. Basically, I, I'm just living in Europe for, for until June, until June, wow. which is crazy, but true. Uh, and then the aristocrats, this hasn't been, you know, officially announced yet, but a couple people have said something about it. We, we are, we're going to do Asia okay. in July, right after Satriani is over. Like we're just starting right away. Uh, and then there'll be more because Satriani is obviously going to do a world tour cycle. So there'll be more Satriani stuff after that too. Do you have an idea of time frame? Is it going to be 2021? Usually, usually he's doing like, and no, nah, actually now the tours I've seen, uh, they're all over the shop, so it, it depends. Uh, there, there's time to do more Satriani stuff in the second half of the year. Definitely. I mean, yeah, yeah there's the whole fall. That's, I'm, I'm sure that's going to be Satriani world. Do you have any plan? Do, do you think the aristocrats are going to tour this um, CD back in the States again? Or are you going to record another album? I don't know. You know, I don't know. It, it's uh, it's still young in the cycle, really. You know, I mean, the, the album only came out uh, five months ago. Yeah, so I hope uh, you come back to uh, the Dallas area because um, the day you played the Guitar Sanctuary, I was flying back from Puerto Rico for my son's wedding. Oh so wow! I'm like, ugh. well, you know, times. it's funny. We we, we haven't done uh, double touring cycles on any record before, uh, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, anything's possible, you know. It's just that yeah. right now we're all we're all dealing. It's all scheduling, man. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's still hard, even though we're all, you know, committed to the band. It's still, it's hard to put the schedules together sure. beyond the cycle you're in. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I noticed that for the, uh, the second leg, you're, you're touching a lot of cities in different countries. You've done a bunch in the UK and Spain and uh, a couple of dates in Portugal, then back to Spain. It's a lot of Southern Europe. We do basically, we do UK and Benelux. And then it's a, just a lot of Southern Europe, mm -hmm. a lot of Spain, a lot of Italy. France is in there too. Yeah, I, I notice a few dates because a lot of people just hit one one um, city and then move on. But this is a pretty conclusive, well, not conclusive is not the right word, but um, comprehensive. Comprehensive. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, pretty pretty comprehensive. Uh, well, uh, you know, I am. Uh, I'm glad that we split it up into two legs because it makes it so that we can do the 11 week tour, which is really mm -hmm. what it is. Touring 11 weeks in a row, <laughs> just, it's to be cheaper just to send me straight to the hospital. So, you know, uh, I like having the five and a half weeks and then the break and then the six weeks. And, and that's the way that this will be. Well, I definitely hope I get to uh, catch up with you in Dallas, either with either band. So, uh, can't wait for that. So, um, yeah, we'll definitely uh, hopefully keep in touch and see if we can uh, touch base then. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on. It's been a great, great interview. Um, so thank you so much and uh, good luck with the future. All right. Thank you. You too, man. Thanks, man. All right. Cheers. Thank you again for listening. And thanks to Brian for taking the time out to talk to me. I think you'll agree that Brian shared a ton of valuable information. I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes because it really helps to get the word out. I think the information that the band's artists and other business people are sharing with me is extremely useful for the musicians community. Don't forget to check out the show notes from this and every other episode at the website at musiconyourownterms.com. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter so you can stay in the loop about upcoming episodes and other events happening with the podcast.
keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Brian Bella with The Storm. Mm-hmm. 